Welcome to the Fighter Dive Podcast. This is Adam Howarth joined by Karen Blakely, Nick O'Neill, and Will Atkinson. We've got our guest in studio or out of studio, as you may say, via Zoom, Travis Leanna joining us from Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. How you doing, Travis? Hey, good, Adam. How you guys all doing today? Pretty good. I do not have the virus. Good on I'm you. Not symptomatic, at least. Not is anybody confirmed. else in here symptomatic? Not yet. Nick is still laying low, quarantined. I'm just trying to be responsible after traveling, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Kind of a self-imposed quarantine. Well, I mean, everything's canceled. I got nothing to do. Yeah, nothing's happening, so. Yeah, there's no reason to even leave your house, even if you could. Yeah. Isn't that kind of nice, though? The world kind of slowed down for a minute. Yeah. No, I miss my concerts. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I no, that's true. I need to stay busy. Like, this is this is making me anxious, and, and yeah. sort of like the ongoing ambient tension doesn't help me and of course like the information overload is similarly like well i don't trust anybody anyway so just stop please so so as a guy as a guy with like a wife and a kid and all that kind of crap i love that all these single people finally have to experience what a family lifestyle is like that you're all just buttoned down in your homes like cooking from scratch and having to do it that way Man, I'm loving all the memes that are talking about deployment. Yeah, Karen, you meal prep like on a Sunday for your whole week. It's highly organized. You're not coming home after work stressed out no. trying to figure out what you've got in the kitchen or the house or the fridge or the freezer. Incorrect, sir. I meal prep for breakfast and lunch, and then I make dinner every day. My God. I mean, what, how's that How's that? How's situation, Karen? Like, what? How does that change things? That's still, that's like, it doesn't matter when you eat the food that you prepare in advance, you're still meal prepping. I still don't think she, well, like, no. like oh, yeah. the disconnect between the fact that you're dinner. able to meal prep to that level. Like, I'm still, I like, I'm such like a unprepared father that I still have to buy my breakfast at a gas station on the way to work when I buy my $1 coffee. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> but how is, how is your deficiency our problem? Like, why is yeah. that on me? <laughs> yeah, my, my extent of meal prepping is uh, it's not hours not, leading up to lunch. But I'm finally <laughs> glad that somebody else is experiencing the pain. So, Travis, uh, dude, where where are you from? Um, Wisconsin, mostly. I grew up in the UP, right on the border of Wisconsin, though. So, small town called Kingsford, but uh, <clears throat> went to high school in the Fox Valley, Appleton area. Okay. So, so probably a, probably a Packers fan, I suppose. Yeah, I was actually born right down the street from the Packers stadium. So, right on. Where you can see in my blood. <laughs> What's that, Will? <laughs> so, so where were you conceived? But <laughs> <laughs> never asked. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was Travis, Texas, or something like that, with everybody getting named by where they were conceived. Um, actually, so Travis, Texas is in San Leanna County. My last name's Leanna for those of you out there. Oh, there's something there. Yeah. Uh, I think for the next podcast, we should bring out his parents. (laughs) We could call conversations. Is there anybody else in your family that was in the military or like, how did you get bitten by the bug? Uh, my grandpa was in the Navy. Um, he never left Chicago. He was actually, he took a boat around the uh, Lake Michigan. That was his whole extent. Um, I don't even know how I got the bug. I think uh, probably the, 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 
youth and, you know, the whole ideas of the grand, grandiose of war and that aspect of it. I'm, I'm one of the first ones for my family to, to go into this. So what, um, pro- probably lack of college preparation too. Is that, <laughs> that'll, that'll help <laughs> out a little bit. Nice little nudge. <laughs> what, uh, what year did you go into the military? When did you finish up high school? So I graduated in 2005. So when I was a, a freshman in high school is when, uh, you know, 9-11, events of 9-11. So that's probably a strong seed planted there. Um, what was that like? What do you remember from that day? Uh, it's definitely a surreal experience. I mean, we were just sitting in class, normal day as any, uh, and all of a sudden everything stops and they're not really kind of talking about it. And then they just, everyone flips on the TV and you just kind of watch the news. No one really talked about it. They just, you know, showed us what was going on and, um, you know, I think it had been a while since we'd had anything like that impact us on our own home turf. Um, so definitely a surreal experience and, and at a, such a young age too, to kind of comprehend what does that mean on the world stage? So, you know, were the recruiters coming into your guys' school after that? Like, were people starting to talk about joining the military? Or were people against joining the military or what, what kind of effects did that play out after 9-11? That's a good question. I don't know. I sought them out. So um, I don't, I don't know if I actually saw an increase in recruitment. Um, And as far as like my, my group of friends, not many had, not many others had expressed interest in going in. So um, I think I was pretty balls to the walls, you know, heading in that direction, but everyone else was like, meh. Was it the Marine Corps first choice or did you, did you hop offices? Like, I feel like a little bit to this is like, uh, I ended up joining the army. My brother ended up joining the air force. And like, when we played football, I was a linebacker and he was a strong safety. And so like, ironically, I was stopping things on the ground. He was stopping things in the air. And so I think our branch fit us. Like, was there anything that goes into when you picked your branch out that how it made sense to you? Um, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm someone who's driven by, by pride. And so I think the Marine Corps was a natural fit. Um, I was easily swindled by the Marine Corps telling me they were the best branch. Uh, that's all it took, really. I don't even think I dug too deep into the, what does each branch have to offer? They were like, hey, we're the best. I'm like, well, I want to I join the best. So yeah, that's awesome. they, were, they were right, by the way, just in case. <laughs> that's awesome. You're outside of that. Were you like hanging outside the Air Force window and the Marines were like, hey, kid, come here. uh they we did have like you know one of those offices where they have each of the you know like a hub and then each branch has their own little office and um i think i did i did do my due diligence and at least went in but i remember the navy guys navy guys were just like these overweight dudes and i just i wasn't impressed by their image so i don't know i think it just had an effect on i think the army guys were pretty legit um i don't remember i think the air force office was closed so, <laughs> yeah, they weren't there. Yes. They were working remotely already. <laughs> They're never there. Yeah. You just joined <laughs> up with the best looking recruiter. Yeah. Like, this guy's the cutest. <laughs> Dude, that's probably the reason I didn't join the Marines is like just seeing their uniforms. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. That looks pretty serious. <laughs> I'm like intimidated by that cloth. <laughs> yeah. Like, dude, I was wearing jeans and t shirts, man, let alone trying to keep that uniform clean. It's like, I was a cargo pants kind of guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're in Wisconsin, I think we all are. Socks and sandals, baby. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that Army recruiters are naturally that 
that truthful. Some are, some probably aren't, but like, what's the, what, how do the recruiters in the Marine Corps go about their process? Dude, they're probably the worst. (laughs) (laughs) The old bait and switch. That's why they, that's why they sell the, we're the best. Cause they don't, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's all they got. That's their line. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not going to tell you about the suck. You tell us about the suck. You know, one thing I always love is uh, I don't know which commandant did it, but it was way back because you know the Marine Corps for for years has been fighting getting shut down completely. Um, I don't know how serious those ever were, but you know, on on the world scale, like we're kind of I don't want to call us redundant, but we're a little bit redundant. Um, the whole boat to land transition is not a huge aspect of war these days. Um, so there have been talks by presidents in the past. And one of the commandants at one point was like, we can do the same thing as everybody else, but for like a fifth of the cost. And so he fucked us moving forward. Yeah. Everything, we have is, everything we have is just garbage, 80s material, you know. Dude, that's how I got my wife, man. I came in, I was like, listen... I'm going to be a very cheap investment in your future. Oh, I'm garbage from the 80s. You're yeah. garbage from the 80s. <laughs> oh, don't say wow. that, man. Wow, this went deep. My wife is actually a really good human. I don't know why she's with me. So, dude, the, these recruiters are just, uh, we're the best. That's it. You're bait and, you know, you're hooked in. You're sold. Oh, totally. But, uh, I go back. I think of myself when I was that age. and I was an idiot. You know, you, you, talk, you talk about boots. You know, people coming in the military are just complete boots, and like that was me. Like, totally self-aware at this point in my life, but yeah, I was like the worst of the worst when it came to the boots. Did you do any like delayed entry program, or or how did it look for as far as like the day that you signed up and the day that you shipped? Yeah, I do. I actually joined uh, the summer in between junior year and, and uh, senior year, so which helped me on the tail end because you know every every contract's eight years. I did five active, but. Uh, um, you know, they took off a year that I was in the delayed entry program or whatever they want to call it. So um, it didn't mean much. It basically means I signed up and then did some PFTs or whatever. A couple How often of did you have to go do that kind of stuff? Not often at all. And I think it was all voluntary. I think it was, hmm. I don't know, to help you prepare for boot camp pretty much. Yeah, I did that for the Army and it was like, I think we did twice. We did. PT. Yeah, yeah it's pretty. I mean, it's kind of a joke, but uh, I mean, really, it was it was to prepare you. And I was in football and track, so the, the the people that I was running with were, I could see why they needed to focus a little bit more on them. You know, people that can't even get a single pull up, those types, just kind of waking them up to the possibility or reality of what's about to happen. So, when did you actually leave for basic training? The following summer? Yeah. So I graduated June, left July seventh or something like that it's 13 weeks for marine basic or what did you mm-hmm. what was that first training piece yeah 13 weeks basic training um came back i think i had like a quick couple week leave or something and then uh and then we went to uh combat training which is more focused on uh i was on the pogue side i worked on aircraft electronics so our training was only three weeks Whereas the, the infantry guys, I don't even know how long they were there for another like two months or something. So are you an East coast guy or a West coast guy? And what's, West the, coast, what's the difference? Yeah. There? I don't even know. So, I mean, we're so close to the East coast, but they let us choose. We're in the middle of the country. They're like, you can choose. So 
I chose uh, hills over sand fleas. Was there like an intense swim test? Because I totally would have joined the Marines, except I didn't know how to swim. So I was I like, I ain't, I ain't trying to learn in basic training. Uh, so I joined the Army. But like, did they have an intense swim test that you guys had to do? Yeah, there was. It's like a lot of the things. Um, they had a swim test. And like really the hardest part for me was like treading water with boots on. Yeah. Um, I think that was the hardest part, but none of the, none of it was really terrible. They have like different levels. So they have like, you know, level zero, which is like, you must qualify to even be a Marine. And then they have up to level four where it's like, you're a Navy SEAL type swimmer. Um, every, most everyone does level zero and just stops. But, um, yeah, all they have to oh, do okay. is like jump off a high dive, swim to the side. And then I don't know. It's, it's oh, really so not that bad. Dude, I wouldn't have done it because even in undergrad, I did uh, like a lifeguarding class just as a way to get like sneak another credit in there. And part of that test, you have to like swim to the bottom of the pool and get a brick and bring it back up. And I like on my way back up, I'm like, well, this is where I die. This <laughs> is <laughs> <laughs> for me. <laughs> Elevator doors start closing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do remember treading water and like, I mean, you're with boots on, it just brings you down just enough to where like your nostrils are right above water. So you're, mm. you're like, in that zone of like, I got air, no, I got water, I got air, I got water, and you're just trying to like keep alive. Uh, the process that led to you uh, choosing to be an avionics marine, or uh, I'm sorry, that that was the field you're in, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's the field that I was in. Um, interested in electronics in high school, and my dad's an electrical engineer, so I just had a natural affinity towards that. So I, when I talked to my recruiter, um, he actually kind of told me about this career path option um working on air traffic control equipment so and it came with a bonus so i was like i like bonuses how much uh it's five thousand dollars but you know after uncle sam took his cut it was probably like three nice uh um, nice so yeah but it was a pretty chill job um i worked on you know air traffic control equipment so all of the radar tactical air um basically any like communications, anything that the controllers use to, to talk or communicate with the airplanes um, is the gear that I worked on. So, Did you feel like you were pretty, those skills were pretty marketable when it was time for you to re-enter the civilian workforce? It was. Um, I had, if I wanted to stay as a technician, I could have easily gotten a job coming out. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of hard skills that come with that job. Um, basic troubleshooting, soldering, those types of, uh, those type of skills. I decided to go back to college. So I kind of took a different route, but, um, that's part of the reason too, is that I knew going into it that I didn't want to be a lifer. Um, so I kind of picked a path that would propel me when I came out. Yeah. That's good strategic thinking for a, you know, 17, 18 year old. I think I just got lucky with the recruiter that, <laughs> He came from that field, so he's like, "Hey, this is an option." <laughs> what was your basic then? Like, were, were you mixed in with um, like the infantry series and stuff like that, or were you guys broken apart, or how'd that play out? Yeah, no. So basic training is basic training. Everyone goes through the same thirteen-week uh, process. Um, so that's uh, basic training for the Marine Corps is in three phases, um, four phases if you want to include the first week. First week is like welcome to basic training like <laughs> um and then after the first week you have what they call black friday where you meet your drill instructors and that's when dude what was that like 
that's when the fun begins, man. So I, I grew up, you know, my, my whole childhood was very cushy. You know, I had good parents, like good upbringing, whatever. So when I I go into black Friday and these guys are just screaming for hours, I don't even know how they had like in hindsight, how they had the energy to scream at us for so long. Like it was impressive. Uh, but I was definitely scared shitless and, uh, it was, it was an high opening experience for someone who kind of, uh, went through life without much difficulty or trouble. Is that the come to Jesus moment? Uh, it kind of was. Like, it was one of those, what the fuck am I doing? Like, no one, you know, everyone talks about going <laughs> in the military and all the stuff you can do, but like, no one told me about like that. No one, like, everyone says it's going to be hard, but I thought it'd be hard, like, oh, like physically hard. But no, it's, it's the mental stuff is the, the real challenge. So, they, and, how do they mess with you? Do they, so for me, my best. My, uh, once I like got fit enough to run more than one mile at a time, uh, the biggest challenge for me in basic training was the constant sleep disruption. And I understand that they like, do they not really do that in Marine Corps basic training? Is it more like just intense preparation or how do they mess with you? That's the thing. You know, because we are in it for so long, we're in it for, you know, three months. Um, it, 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 at the end of month two, you kind of figure out what they're doing. And the whole thing is they give you a task, right? Whatever it is, you know, everyone go take a shit, like whatever it is. Um, They just don't give you enough time to do it. So they like, they set you up for failure and then they yell at you when you fail. And the whole idea is just, you know, break down those mental barriers, but it's really the whole, the whole concept of it is, is you cannot succeed in the task that we give you, but, you damn well should try and you should try hard. Like, I don't know. No, I hear you. It was the most like, ridiculous task. I mean, we had to like go set up our entire barracks back down on the concrete area underneath, you know, underneath it all. And we had to do all just kinds of crazy stuff like that. You know, what were some of the, the silly things you guys had to do in basic like that? Oh God. Silly or disturbing? <laughs> all. Oh, disturbing. <laughs> all the one above, of the most, please. One of the most disturbing things uh, that I remember it. I, I, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to go back into a recruiter's mind in hindsight, but so they had us take showers quickly, like, you know, in and out, like three minutes, like 80 people, you know, 80 people in our platoon. And, and obviously we don't succeed. So they like play the fuck fuck games and, um, you know, they're like, okay, like run here and run there. And then, so they like run us back into the shower room and they all have us like huddled in the corner like over here, over there. And I'm just sitting here like not to butt with all these guys, like naked, imagine like 80 naked dude shoved into the corner of a shower room. And I'm like, what? Like just bizarre. Just like, what were they thinking? How does this teach us anything? Did we, li- we life hacked that scenario. It got to the point to where what we would all do is the, the four sinks on your way to the shower. We'd start bar soaping ourselves up in wine. So like when you got into the cold showers and you got your 15 seconds of fame underneath it, that you could reasonably get pretty clean. Nice. Yeah. One of my life hacks uh, all through boot camp is that I've never had facial hair. I still really can't even grow a beard. Um, oh, that's it. We're going to stop the podcast. At the <laughs> I know. I know. 
but uh so when it came to shaving i never had a shave so that was that's like awesome my, my huge like oh i hate you so pack. much i know i know a lot of other guys in my platoon did too dude i would take naps on the shitter yeah we had we had this one dude garcia this little mexican dude he's probably like five three but he was he was jacked he was fast and everything but he was small enough to wear on the weekends on sundays when everybody would either go to church or clean the bay he would go into his wall locker and sit on his duffel bag and take naps and one Smart time man. one of our drills decided to do like some sergeant's time training where he was actually like he was doing the nice thing where he's like all right guys come in your privates we're going to train you how to do this and like we forgot to get Garcia <laughs> all of a sudden in the middle of this really quiet lesson on whatever it was you hear him wake up and start beating out his wall locker to get out and so we had to go get him bring him out and the drill was just dumbfounded he's like what the fuck am I seeing here privates <laughs> so Travis uh, after you finished up what basic training and then the marine combat training that that's like the month-long thing that follows it then when did you go to job school yeah, so job school was, I mean, right after that. Um, so at that that point, what I was in for five months, um, went down to Pensacola, Florida. Um, I guess that would have been the winter of 2006. Um, spent a year and a, a year there, a year and a half. No, it was a full year there um, down in Florida. And that doing base, basically your A school and then my C school was also there, so... A school was learning basic electronics, and then the C school was more specifically to the equipment that I was working on. Yeah, so it was actually uh, it's actually a Navy base, so it's NAS Pensacola Naval Air Station. Um, it's where the um, Blue Angels are based out of. But uh, so we most of our classes were paired up with the Navy. Uh, there were some Air Force guys there too. Um, we tried our best to stay away from them because they had some, <laughs> I never forget. So when I moved from A school to C school, um, you know, A school, they like cram three people in a room. You share a bathroom with six people. It's just, it's whatever. It just is what it is. It's, you know, it's not the barracks. So you feel good about that. Um, and I moved to my C school and I got my own room. Like, hallelujah. Whoa. It was awesome. Like huge, right? it was bare bones. I mean, there was a bed and a table and that was it. Um, in the same barracks on the top floor was that was the air force guys. And we always had to do rotations at the front desk. And I remember one time the guy came in, he goes, uh, excuse me, I can't find my TV, my microwave. And I was like, go buy one. And turns out that they were actually provided all those things. And they actually got paid a per diem for living in the substandard barracks. Of course <laughs> So, Dude, that's ridiculous. So good old Air Force, but well, that's my brother was in the Air Force. I love it. The Air Force, they're always there to remind you that no matter how good you think you're finally getting it, it's mm -hmm. not as good as the Air Force has. Yeah. Well, that's what I found out visiting my brother is he was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base up in the Panhandle near Pensacola, and like once he made E four, him and all of his friends moved out and just rented a house together, and essentially partied and like went, you know, wakeboarding every weekend. And I'm like, were you in the military? <laughs> like he deployed a lot and he did that kind of stuff. But whenever they were back stateside, his, his life was easy, man. Yeah. It, it wasn't Pensacola. Didn't they have an incident there in the last year or so? Like an on-base shooting? Yeah. I, I recall that uh, is actually within the last four or six months, I betcha. 
I don't know. I don't have any more details than that, but I definitely heard about that. Wild. I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of gross that that's just kind of the, the new normal, you know, they just kind of blend together these mass shootings and stuff. But That was about the same time. There was one over in Hawaii too. They, oh, yeah. Like almost simultaneously. I just remember like at the Pensacola one, one of the guys who was in training to be a pilot was one of the guys that responded. And so, um, just thinking of that. Hmm. What was that? What was your next stop on, on the trail for you, Trev? Uh, so that was it. I mean, graduated high five, move on to life. Um, how did you, how did you break up with your AIT girlfriend or did you like, <laughs> once you were in big gender training, what was that like? I, uh, so during this whole time I had had a girlfriend from high school yet. Um, uh, phone calls every day, that kind of thing. Uh, she moved, I'm not, she didn't move, but she came with me when I, or we were still together when I left. Um, my next stop was in San Diego. I was in Miramar, Top Gun base. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and then it wasn't until I turned 21 that we, uh, almost to the day that we broke up. So, <laughs> so you're down in the gaslight district every weekend until <laughs> three in the morning. That's a whole other story. Um, no, she actually broke up with me because yeah. of the thought that I would be going to bars wild yeah uh but yeah so the next stop it was actually interesting so you know going into into the military i was very much like i want to travel i want to do things i want to be up there and you know i was a single guy i was a young guy some of the guys that i went to school with were a little bit older some of them had a family and so when they you know you get your little wish list of like where do you want to go and what do you want to do and i was like i want to deploy and you can send me wherever the fuck you want and <clears throat> they end up sending me to um, a headquarters squadron in Miramar in San Diego, which is practically like a civilian job that's non-deployable. And I was like, cool. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the same thing everybody else gets. You, you d- absolutely didn't get your needs met. Well, it's stupid, too, because there's a bunch of guys with families who wanted the opposite, and then they get sent to the deployment. I definitely like, didn't get what you wanted. I don't know. <clears throat> I guess everybody's got to get the green wing at some time. I mean, I can't complain too much because then I was in San Diego, right? I mean, that was cool. Yeah, what was that like? It wasn't the experience I was anticipating, but it was also not an experience I didn't enjoy. Um, so what were your expectations and how was that different? Uh, well, I, the, you know, so I was, on a, I was in a headquarters squadron. So literally my job was paired up with civilians. Um, uh, you know, government workers who worked on the same equipment I did. We basically worked out of the same office. Um, so while we were in the military and we did, you know, some of the typical military things like annual rifle quals and PFTs, most of my work was working on an, an air station, working on all the equipment on it, uh, keeping the airfield operational. It felt a lot like a civilian job, um, which is not... <laughs> Not what I had in mind, but it, it was what it was. Um, so that was pretty much most of my experience was was there. And it takes so long to learn the equipment that once you're there, you, it's hard to get out because sure. the training rate so so long. So I feel like that's what's interesting about the military experience, though, is that 
you may have had this expectation like, oh, I'm going to go do this and this and this. But ultimately, like the army is going to tell you what experience you're going to have. You know what I mean? Like there's this is where you're going. Deal with it. Like, oh, okay, got it. You know, you know what you get when you don't get what you want, right? Experience. Yeah. (laughs) You said your grandfather was in the Navy and he was stationed in Illinois, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. Same thing. Like, go see the world, travel, get on a ship, and here you go. Not You're so in Illinois fast. now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. My grandpa had a jaded view of the military. He's like, his his view is don't join. So, <laughs> what were some of those conversations like? Uh, I at that point in my life, I knew everything, so I didn't need his advice. Um, mm-hmm. So I really didn't. Uh, I don't know. So I, I shut know. him down. I was kind of like, yeah, I was kind of like, okay, thanks for your input. I'm doing it anyways, you know, like, like most 19 year olds are. So that, the cool thing about uh, aviation, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's like incredibly technical, right? So you're kind of describing how you were stuck there, but it's also, you're working with a a pretty talented group and um, those skills stick with you. And like, can you tell me more about some of your work experiences, your colleagues, and, and the, the actual equipment that you were involved with? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really did enjoy the people I worked with. Um, it was a pretty cool atmosphere. It, you know, obviously not what I was anticipating, but um, it was still a really great experience nonetheless. Um, so, some of the equipment we would work on, um, communications from the planes, to the uh, air traffic control and also to the squadron. So, you know, the squadron COs could talk to the planes while they're up in the, up in the air. Um, <clears throat> also the radar equipment that's on the ground that tells the planes where they are relative to, you know, um, the ground when they're up in the air. Um, <clears throat> some of the more interesting experiences that I had was, you know, cause we have to do monthly maintenance testing and all the stuff on the equipment and all of our equipment's out on the airfield. So some of the equipment we would do, we would work on was right on the flight path. And so, I mean, almost on a, a weekly or monthly basis, we would have uh, F-18s flying, you know, 15 feet over our heads. Um, kind of a neat, neat thing to be out there and so close to uh, uh, aircraft and kind of in that way. Yeah, that's wild, man. That's, that's doing more than musting your hair at that when they're coming in. Yeah. And I was uh, super smart about it, so I never wore ear protection. <laughs> I'm just gonna ask, how's your hearing? <laughs> I never, you know, you're invincible when you're young, so I never. Oh needed yeah. It. So what next then? <sighs> next, next. Well, well, so I was I was there for a long time, and then you know I was always itching to get out, and there was a few opportunities that came, um, requests for additional personnel. And I kept putting my name in the bucket, but they kept saying, you're, you know, priorities here, priorities here. And one time we actually had just a ton of guys working with, working with me on our team. And they're like, yeah, you're, you're expendable right now. Like we don't need you. So if you want to go, you can go. And so in 2008, um, the first MEF was deploying out to Fallujah, Iraq, uh, to help, um, deconstruct the base there. We were, we were pulling out of uh, Camp Al-Fallujah. And so I got to, um, the Marine Corps has that rule where every Marine's a rifleman and I know the infantry guys probably eye roll at that, but um, I got to take advantage of the opportunity and go do some some things that I thought were pretty interesting. So uh, 
basically went out to Fallujah and did, did uh, guard duty as far as um, it's not a rotational team with first MEF doing QRF, uh, quick react force. We also did uh, entry control points, tower duty, which was interesting. Uh, and then we also worked out on a FOB, which was a, a pump house for all the water going into Fallujah. So um, you were on that QRF. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, our our group kind of rotated. We had four different groups and we just, you know, you do like a week or two here, a week or two there. So you just kind of rotate through all those positions. Um, yeah. How were you living? Did you, when you're on QRF, were you sleeping on your vehicles or were you uh, billeted up in barracks or was it just like? Yeah, it was, out? you know, so I was there in 2008 and at that point the whole base was built up. I mean, they had libraries they had i think they had a movie theater i mean it was very it was not i was like what am i what am i going to expect here like laundry you would you would uh you would hand off your clothes and a bag of laundry to um some local nationals and then they would fold wash them and fold them and give them back to you and you're so it's very different than what i was anticipating those clothes came back so clean yeah Total yeah. Sarcasm. Yeah. mine were not mine were not oh, like, mine were. like okay this was shit yeah, I that was came awesome. back chemically altered significantly, but they didn't. They, I'm not willing to admit that they were mine. You know, like, yeah, I have, yeah. like mismatched socks. Like I've never seen this before. Like that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> like, like there yeah. was some, there was some, uh, there was some swapping going on that wasn't necessarily authorized. I don't think. Right. Yeah, but no. Just to get, just to get like real uncomfortable, I had one time when I dropped off my laundry bag and I got it back and a pair of my underwear were missing. So I, I was like a, convinced like <laughs> one of the Hajis stole my underwear. They probably no, did. Def, like sincerely, I got, there was a, you know, it was a grab bag experience for me when I took my stuff to the laundry often. And I think some ladies undergarments ended up in my stuff more than once. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, but I mean, all those all those benefits went away because we were <clears throat> we were deconstructing the base, so it kind of went from good to bare bones minimum, where you're, you know, MREs for four days or five days, and then you get one C rats before you go back to four or five days MREs. What was guard duty like? Like you said, you had some interesting stuff happening there. Like, um, how long were you guys rotating up into the shacks? And like, you know, do you guys, you know, what was the what was the area of operation even like at that point? Was it chilled out or was it still popping off? No, it was actually, it, when I was there, it was pretty chill. And I, I think the reason it was so chill was because they realized that if they stopped attacking, um, we wouldn't move out. If there was nothing for us to do, and, and we were. like That's why I was there is because we were demailing the base. So um, we would do, we would get some, some car bombs here and there. And obviously the mortars never really stopped, but um yeah, most of the traffic was pretty minimal uh, when I was there. And so our, our area of observation was basically like two miles surrounding the base. So it was a pretty small um, section that we were in charge of. But um, yeah, it was pretty quiet when we were there. Anytime indirect fire came in, like in the first couple months, everybody would run to the bunkers and stuff like that. <laughs> and like after it got to a point to where I remember the first time I slept through any type of indirect fire and somebody came and got me and they're like, Oh dude, you didn't come to the bunker. I'm like, yeah, I'm not anymore. <laughs> like, I'm just going to stay in bed. Yeah. Keep it's, sleeping. it's so funny. Like you freak out. You're like, dude, it's coming. Like we're going to get hit. And then yeah, after like a month or two or whatever, you're just, you're like, okay, here they come. 
I think that's how you could tell who'd been there the longest, right? Like, I remember when I got to Bagram, there was a subway, and we had just gotten there, and the air alarm went off, and, like, our group dropped to the ground as fast as we could, and we looked up, and people are still, like, ham and Swiss. I'd like salami on that. (laughs) (laughs) As we're leaving country, we were those people. Like, we were leaving, and the air raid alarm went off, and we looked around, and everybody else was on the ground, and we're still trying to decide what kind of cheese to put on our sandwich. You mean you didn't line up perpendicular to the the aircraft and <laughs> lay down? <laughs> oh. Negative. I think that's funny, though. That's just the natural evolution that we all go through. Do you have any – so do you have any, like, again, expectations versus reality? When you got into country, it sounds like you were expecting one thing and then you found movie theaters. And then when you were leaving country – did you have any like moment of, wow, this is what it's really about, or this is what I just have become? You know, I think because kind of the natural progression that I had, right? I was like, go, 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 military, like, you know, you see the movies and you have these like ideas and you're doing all this training, right? And so you've got this idea of combat. Um, so when I when I went into country, I had this very distinct idea of what war zone would be like and almost from day one it, it flipped on its head um i remember going out on my first convoy and i was up in the gunner seat um of the turret on our humvee and i remember being excited i was like this is gonna be awesome and then literally like three miles down the road as i'm sitting behind a 50 cal i'm like i might have to pull this trigger and end someone's life like totally flipped all the coolness that I had going into it to like this real situation where like people's lives were literally, you know, is the decision that I had to make. And yeah, made it a very different reality from uh, what I went going into it. So it becomes business at that point, you know, and it's kind of part of that like disassociation from the reality a little bit is that like, you know, we kind of have to step out of it in order to be able to, to function. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a lot of um, <clears throat> a lot of the stuff when I got out of um, you know because like for instance one of the instances when I was on QRF is we had a guy bring a cell phone onto base which is uh, sorry a local national bring a cell phone onto base you know they'd come onto base daily and do t- different tasks you know garbage or whatever deliveries but they couldn't bring phones on because they could obviously take pictures and send intel. Um, <clears throat> So we had a we had to detain this guy, and here I am. I think I was 21 at the time, maybe 22, um, with this grown man, mid 40s maybe, um, and we had him detained. He was blindfolded, handcuffed behind his back, kneeling in the gravel, and uh, he was just sobbing. Like you know, we were. I wouldn't say we were mean to him, but like you know, we were strict and we were like you know, this is the situation that you're in and, you know, wait till we get Intel to come in here and, and question you. But, um, you know, at one point he wet himself and oh, here Jesus. I am. I, I, I mentally know the reason why he can't do it. Right. And I know that, um, the likelihood that he could be someone who has a nefarious purpose, um, is a reality and we can't just let those things slide. But at the same time, I'm like putting this human being through this intense experience where he's probably like, the fuck is happening right now and am i gonna get in deep shit like and i gotta imagine what that was like for him but 
you know, so it's those realities that you go through and, and those are like daily occurrences. Those are those ethical and kind of moral dilemmas that you fall into, you know, like every, every piece of combat's had shell shock, PTSD, et cetera. But I think one of the new things people are looking at is like the moral injury that may occur. And like those situations where you have to take somebody else and you imagine their perspective, you put them in a, a undignifying position and like what that even feels like, you know, if this guy was coming at you face to face with a rifle and you had your rifle, fine, man, game on. Uh-huh. But like, like these little things that kind of happen where all of a sudden you've got to, you know, zip strip this dude up. You've got to put him on his knees blind. That's tough stuff. That guy at that point, he probably thought he was taking a trip down to Abu Ghraib. And when you go into Abu Ghraib, you don't come back out of that prison typically. And so like, you know, there's some other things he probably had going on in his head too, that, that, that caused him to stress out so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Adam, I'm glad you mentioned that. Like there's a, you know, definitely a, a huge component. I don't know the, you know, just to, to what that experience must be like those Iraqi folks that are, you know, if they're trying to help or not, or like whatever they're doing. And I bet that dude's assumption was like, he gets blindfolded. He sees, you know, he's being detained by people with sidearms, especially he's probably thinking an execution's coming his way, you know, mm-hmm. but Travis, I really appreciate you. Um, like kind of sharing that, that pivotal point for when you're cruising down the, down the road and you have that realization, you know, cause it reminded me of a, a moment I had, when I was just in medic school. Right. And it's just like the, one of the very first things we did, Adam, and uh, you'll have to tell me if like your experience was uh, congruent with mine, but like first thing we do is get CPR trained. Right. And it's just like, Oh yeah, no worries. Like CPR, this is, this is so basic. This is easy. You know, you kind of hope the tempo through the rest of your training is going to be that straightforward. But then we started doing like infant CPR and I was like, you know, I had learned that if you do CPR effectively, you're almost guaranteed to break ribs and just like breaking an infant's ribs at that moment kind of made things like super, just the idea made things super real. And like being a medic is not like running up with that med kit in the video games and, and, or like waving like a healing wand at someone. There are, there are some gross technical things that we're about to get into. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting point because, you know, since I've been out, I've, I've worked a lot with veterans, um, kind of reintegrating. And <clears throat> one of the things that I noticed is a key, um, key aspect to a lot of different experiences is that um, a lot of these guys or girls who have intense experiences but don't necessarily go into direct combat. I mean, really, the people that go into direct combat is a very small section of the military as a whole. But they have these experiences that don't, you know, like you're like you're saying with breaking the infant's ribs or like what I'm saying of, of going out, you don't necessarily go through those intense experiences, but you still have those moments where you have those realizations and that maybe they go against your moral code or whatever the case is. And they try and write them off when they when they're coming back home and reintegrating because they're like, well, I didn't experience the intense combat. So clearly nothing should be wrong they kind of like wave it off and like, no, like this is still a reality. Like this is still something that like we need to, you know, consider as you, as you go back and you know, reintegrate into to civilian life. Yeah, uh, talk about some of the detainee stuff and things like that. Like Karen, what was your experience with that? Like, you know, did you guys do detainee ops or. No, similar? we did. Um, we worked, we went out to IP stations every day and trained IPs. So that's what we did. So we didn't have too much interaction with that. Um, but I think 
I think Travis makes a really good point. Like there's a lot of things you go through in the military that, that you kind of wave off. Like, like, yeah, like I didn't really see shit, you know, like the guys that were actually, well, like our last guest, Josh, like he was the ranger out there, you know, in combat. Um, so you kind of think like, Oh, I didn't really have anything traumatic happen to me. But in reality, like a lot of that stuff does kind of sink and stay with you for a long time. And you kind of debate, like, did I make the right decision in that incident? You know? And it's hard to predict like when those moments are going to come back up and and get you, you know, like, you know, I'll admit a little bit, like as much therapy as I've ever done, like I got no point of stability and then I had a kid and then it seemed like a whole other rush of stuff was happening. And then all of a sudden, you know, I start thinking back into those times of any of the times we took the fathers away from their families and things like that. And, you know, we had good reasons for what we were doing, but it's like, you know, how would I react if somebody decided to try to take me out of my home, you know, kicking and screaming, if not more. It's just, I think right, like Travis's story. Yeah. Like Travis's story is like a classic thing of like empathy, right? Like, 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 yes, they're, they're, you know, Iraqis and like you're automatically like trained to assume that they are going to do something bad or wrong to you and, and all your fellow soldiers. But like, there are people there that they were just people trying to get through their lives and you can't help but like feel some empathy for that. Like I felt for, like, I know when we were going on mission and stuff, you'd see all these people, especially like, you know, farmers, and they were just, just trying to get by. Like, they had nothing to do with, you know, what was going on. They were just trying to live their lives. And it's like, so you feel this empathy for them, like, you know, but like, you're still there and you're still having to do your mission. But, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. And just think, like, we set up this base and it's been going on for years and we're probably the best employer in the entire country, right? Like, we're probably paying the best wage for any of these folks to come in and do any type of work in the base. You know, how many people, maybe give us a sense of of how many people were actually coming in to Camp Fallujah on a daily basis from the community doing some type of work on the installation? Ah, uh, jeez. Um, I would say on the order of of... 50 to a hundred. I mean, it was a lot. That's I mean, it was a, a constant. Lot. It was a constant flow of people. And yeah. And did you guys have different entry points for them to come on to, onto the base as opposed to like what maybe the QRF was using to bounce out or any of the line units were using to come in and out? Yeah. So the entry control points, we had, we had two main control points, North and South. Um, the South was the main one where we sent most of the um, individuals through and the North was mostly for, uh, cargo traffic like trucks that kind of thing and usually the people that came into the north gate had like a special pass and so it was the south gate that was more um, geared towards the selection of who can come in that kind of thing so good reminder i need to remember to sign up for tsa pre-check if we ever have flights again (laughs) if we ever fly on planes again (laughs) so i uh i during my first appointment i was unwise and volunteered for everything so i ended up getting detailed to a number of things outside of the aid station and uh i was posted as a gate guard for about a month to our civilian access point for the fob we called it golf gate uh, and it was it was it was pretty crazy there was a steady flow of local nationals in every day and subsequently a pretty steady flow of contraband but i was not uh, privy to all that stuff. I was just up in the guard tower, but you know, I was kind of astonished at like all the wild experiences you can have just scanning your sector. You know what I mean? Because we took, 
we took a little bit of a like indirect fire and stuff and and it wasn't that that was it was kind of neat the way it, it um so we were just that entrance to our fob was just adjacent to the iraqi army fob at the time and they were the ones that were like taking the incoming rounds but they're detonating sort of above any of the buildings so i'm pretty sure they were harmless but the way they just like exploded and then sparkled like fireworks without the extra gunpowder you know to be colorful i was just like oh so that's what that looks like but uh the ncoic out there was like ah we're under attack and like uh you know almost engaged this lister bag and these stray dogs because he thought it was a complex you know sort of sort of action uh but that that wasn't the case i was struck by sometime later when i like just read in the army times or stars and stripes that there had been a murder in a watchtower on a nearby fob like around the time that i was on gate guard and what had happened was an iraqi army soldier and a regular you know u.s forces soldier had fallen in love and had a romantic dispute that erupted in this guard tower and ended up in you know the american soldier shot the iraqi guy and i was just like Guard is wild. <laughs> Domestic incident. Huh. Did Travis, what kind of resources did you guys have? Uh, uh, you know, what makes me think of the question is I know whenever we would go in and out of Abu Ghraib prison to refuel and things like that, some of the resources they had were parachute flares. And so that was kind of an interesting thing at night. Every once in a while, they just, you know, hit the whole entire outlying area of parachute flares. And then we'd kind of do some recon and try to see what we could find. What kind of resources did you guys have in the event that shit went down? Uh, we definitely had flares and different flares for different situations. Um, we also had, um, so on the base, maybe the base less so, but on when we were out at the FOB uh, for the pump house, they actually had this camera. Uh, we called it the Eagle Cam. I don't know. I think maybe it was the manufacturer of it. But um, it was like a night vision camera that went, you know, 50, 40, 50 feet in the air, and you could just control it from a room. Um, that, that is what kept me sleeping at night. Um, cause I tell you when that particular base, there's usually only 12 of us on the base, or, you know, fob, whatever. Um, <clears throat> we had three towers. It's a very small little area. Um, but, um, one of the things that freaked me out the most is when you're, when you're up in the tower and, you know, we don't actually have a physical gate, you know, we have, post next to the door so but when there's a what do you call it a new moon you know there's no you can't see the moon and the beautiful beautiful uh light that it gives <laughs> uh it's pitch black that shit's scary that camera doesn't work no the yeah, camera yeah. the camera did still work it still work okay because like uh, no loom man that's tough sometimes even under nods to be able to see a whole lot but uh my eyes did not work you know we didn't have lights um on the fob. So we would be looking into pitch play and I had night vision goggles, but you don't sit there with, you know, freaking holding those things up 24 seven. Um, we'd pop flares every once in a while, just to mostly for the enemy to keep them from guessing when we might do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. A good, good point there. I'm like the, you know, not establishing patterns that are too tight and finding ways to stay a little unpredictable to keep mm-hmm. everybody even off edge. Like surprisingly, you know, that alone could have kept you guys from having any type of, uh, assault force come on out of that small fob or anything like that. And you just won't know. You won't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. You know, you know, what gets me <clears throat> is these, the, the, the local nationals, right. We'd go out 
when we were on the fob duty, we'd go out and do like foot patrols of the local villages and stuff. And there was one time we went for quite a long one and it was right when we were demilling the fob. And so the first, one of the first things to go down was that Eagle cam and we took it down at night. And then the next morning we went on a, a foot patrol and we were, we were down a ways. I think we were like two villages down and we talked to some contacts that we had in the village and they're like, Oh, I see that your eyes are down. And we're like, dude, like that's too quick for you to know that. Like the, the Intel that they have, this is, maybe it was a naiveness in me, but like, I, I kind of think of them as like simplistic and, you know, don't have technology. So they must be stupid. Like not the case. Um, well, I mean, guys knew way too much. Yeah. It, those, it's weird because it's some of those just dissonant impressions you can get because there are people in that part of the world that live in mud and garbage huts. And I don't know what they do to sustain themselves, but that's, yeah. that's where they sleep. That's where, and you know, and there's uh, like just the midden heat, the pile of trash in the gutter, all that stuff. But uh, at one time, like some just incredible majority of uh, Iraqi males had engineering degrees. Like at the university there in Baghdad was just pumping out engineers, you know? So these improvised, like improvised weapon systems, that's what, you know, that they had just kind of used whatever was available in their ingenuity to do a pretty decent job of giving what they could back to us, you know? Mm-hmm. The level of intelligence that's on the ground mixed with how fast they were communicating to be able to be able to articulate and even challenge you a little bit and say, Hey, we noticed your eyes are down, you know, yeah. and then to be able to gauge your response by that, like whether you decide to make up some bullshit and say, Oh, we switched everything's up in the air now, you know, or like whatever you do to kind of get by in that moment. I, I think that's just insane, right? How quickly they made that. And you're t- now you, how long from that dude saying that statement until you finally got out of that fob and, and pulled out of that area. Uh, I think it was another two days. So we weren't there much longer. That's still a long two days to be sitting on that thought. What if that, yeah. What if, and what if that guy is just deliberately conducting human and psyops type operations, you know, that's, that's sophisticated or Mm -hmm. just a, just a guy being observant in the neighborhood. Right. Right. (laughs) Never know. Yeah. What was, uh, what were the purpose of some of those patrols? Was it uh, just to be seen and noticed? Was it to, to observe, you know, what was the intention? Yeah. Seen and noticed. Um, <clears throat> a lot of it too was, was beneficial, you know, when the hearts and minds was kind of the yeah. phrase of the day when we were there. And so we would actually have our medic um, help people in the villages. Um, I remember one time we walked up to this woman and they'd come to us cause they knew what we were doing or what they could get from us. And aside from the kids all screaming for cookies and candy and <laughs> porches, they had, we had flashlights, they call them torches. But um, there's one woman who had this like big gauze on her hand and she unwrapped it and it was like a cut. But I mean, it was just, it had must've been festering for like a week and our, <laughs> our doc cleaned her up and uh, just a wild, wild experience of what kind of uh, um injuries and stuff they go through. And that was another part of what we would try and do is, is help them through some of those basic injuries and kind of help them out. I was involved in a number of like CMEs, like coalition medical engagements where we go out to these, the villages and, and sort of do whatever we could. But the sad thing was like, I think a lot of those Iraqi villagers grossly overestimated our true abilities because they would bring us like, 
uh, long-term disabled children and congenital oh, defects and stuff. And we would just have like as many Flintstone vitamins and, and oral hygiene kits as you want, you know? So mm-hmm. it was, it was kind of tough. Cause you want to do, you want to do more, but at the same time, you're like, this, who are these? Like, what's this village even like, mm-hmm. you know, but then, so it's just another one of those weird things. Decision-making points, you know, Travis, like back on that foot patrol, that guy makes that comment about the Eagle Eye. Did you guys just, you know, let it fly or what did you guys even do with the guy? No, I mean, he's in our, he's in an informant. So, I mean, it was, it was our job to kind of like pull stuff from him. And honestly, that was information that was good for us to know that they know, you know, you know, make assumptions, but um, at least it's, it's good to get that feedback. Dude, I remember like talking at you talking on those football trolls that you guys did. Like there were some where you, you do your, your general work, but at one point we all purchased a, a internet satellite dish off of the community. Like when we were on a foot patrol, put it in the back of the Humvee and then went back to our fob and set up like an illegitimate satellite. And then finally it came down that our unit had it and we got in a little bit of trouble for it. But I just remember as we're like burying cables in the fob, somebody would come like driving by and you'd kind of stop work and wait for him to go by and then start digging against you can bury it. But just some of the shit you do in the community, like the candy stores are pretty awesome. We found this Kurdish vendor up by Sonder City that would sell us loads of we'd feed the whole platoon for 20 bucks, you know, like was there anything like that when you guys were out doing foot patrols and at least, you know, you got a fun story out of the deal. Yeah, you know, there was one time, well, for one, we'd always get um, those barriers, you know, you fill with sand. Yeah, Esco. Uh, Esco barrier, yeah. We, um, we had a few of those that were, we didn't use. Like, we had done, we had enough for what we needed, and then we had, a f- like, two or three of them that were, like, out in front of our base, just kind of, like, in a heap. And on the daily, we would get people who would want to come trade for those <laughs> Um, towards the end of our, um, cause we were going to hand once we were like in the last week of us being there and we were eventually going to hand over our fob to the, uh, Iraqi police. Um, we kind of got like a clearance, like they're going to take it over anyways. Like you can give it to them. Um, so they actually traded it for, we got a, a dinner from them. We, they, they killed some chickens and they fried up some chickens with some rice. And, um, I tried to blank out the, the aspect that they use their bare hands to <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they you washed know. her hands properly. Yeah. There's probably not an A rating on the front of that storefront. <laughs> <laughs> There's no rating. But I tell you what, like like it was an awesome meal. Um you got to share it with some cool people. So Yeah, that's awesome. And and was it set up like a family style where it was just like, you know, four big bowls of rice, four chickens spread out and everybody kind of just like reached in and, and went yep. for it? Yep. Yeah. They had uh big plates of rice and then on top of each plate, like on top of the rice was like all the chicken and they had like, like a whole chicken just kind of plopped right on there. But it's not like the American sit down where you and your family, everybody gets their own little steak or their own chicken breast, you know, like oh. <laughs> it's not like that at all. It's just like kind of, and yep. I actually appreciated that part out of their culture mm-hmm. that, that we had at a time where one of the local sheikhs who probably was one of our informants, um, he, he just fed our whole platoon spontaneously. It's like, Oh, you're here. Let's eat. And so like, we all just kind of stood up around this table, about 30 of us just kind of eating and munching. And I was like, man, this is actually kind of cool. I enjoy this experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's really neat. I was fortunate to be able to have something like that happen to me a number of times, but uh, eventually my ran, my luck ran out and I got very, very, very sick from like some sort of food poisoning. That's what ciprofloxin's for. Yeah, you bet. So I went up to the aid station and I, I'm like, hey, I think I like I'm I think I'm sick. I haven't been feeling well. We had this uh you know, this feast at the 
Jake's house last night and this morning I went and I was feeling strange and, you know, had some eggs for breakfast since then hadn't eaten anything. And they're like, yeah, you know, okay, well, come on in. Gave me the two little Cipro tabs and make some water to drink it down. Like, we'll be back, you know, and just, just hang out. We'll come, like, we're going to monitor you for, you know, over the next half hour to an hour. And I'm like, great. As soon as they leave the room, I just like, <laughs> the up. And I'm like, oh no, you know, and I'm like, there's no way they didn't hear me. Uh, so I'm just waiting for somebody to come back in and be like, you puked everywhere. Are you sick fool? And I'm like, yep, yeah, sorry. But that didn't happen. So I'm like, cool. and it got like to an awkward point. I'm like, huh. So I cleaned up this whole mess <laughs> and I sat back down and I'm like, Oh, like nobody, they're still not here. And I just like, didn't know what to do because I didn't feel like wandering around the whole aid station. Be like, Hey, like, <laughs> can I have another mop? You know? Dude, but, that's uh, funny. They smelled the med- medic coming in and they heard you puke and they're like, nah, I'm going to go get child. Yeah, just like, forget like, this guy. <laughs> that guy can figure it out. He's a medic. Yeah. No. So eventually somebody was like, somebody did come and check on me and I, you know, I pointed to the, bucket of rags and puke in the corner i'm like yeah i threw those pills up so what was the water situation like there because like on the bigger bases you have the non-potable water like in some of the the trailers or whatever that you'd shower and stuff and you're not supposed to use but like were you guys on bottled water were they bringing over those water buffaloes or how were you guys getting water yeah we had water bottles um did they sit in the sun for like at least 19 days before you got to use them leaching the plastics off the insides of the bottles? Yeah, we had, um, at least at the fob. Um, it, I don't think it, no, even, even when you're on base, cause what they did is they just palletized them. Yeah. So they would just sit on a pallet. Um, at the fob, we had this big wooden container. Um, and they just throw them in there. So like a heap, you know, they just bake in the sun all day and, <laughs> that'll be our generation's thing is that we'll all come down with some type of stomach cancer that's all related to the plastics from those bottles oh, i remember they get so hot you could essentially just shower with them it was actually like nice but whenever you'd go to yeah. drink it it was it was a tough go because you, you knew you had to keep your water going because it was this hot you're getting all your salt sweating out like but mm-hmm. you're not you're not encouraged to drink water when it's that hot it's so right. difficult yeah we would take them and throw them under our bunks we'd like have three under there at any time and you just kind of rotate smart. So there was a, uh, that's, that was the first thing I thought of when you mentioned dismounted foot patrols, Travis is just like the heat and drinking hot water, you know, because at some point you can feel it. If it's hot in your hand. It's probably warmer than your core temperature, but mm-hmm. you do have to try and stay hydrated. So, um, dude, just, again, it, like as you start to progress to the longer in, in zone, like I think you start to chill out a bit or you start to at least, I don't know, fall into place to where then at that point on foot patrols, I would just buy cold water when we're taking a walk. I'd be like, oh, you have refrigerator full of cold water. You know, we just start buying it all off the community. Yeah, we didn't walk through. The places that we walked through were uh, not that hospitable. Uh, otherwise, that would have been great. On the one occasion or the, the few occasions that I was able to purchase something from a local Nash, one time during my first deployment, it was just this melon. And the preventive medicine guys, like, immediately confiscated. I'm like, it's a melon. You know, what? it's the stuff is on the inside that you eat right like how are people going to get sick but then there was we did find a, a kebab guy who was pretty clutch uh, nice. on that second karen you know you're out at these I, like, stations all the time what the listen, hell yeah like everybody else participated in eating what was the bread called i can't even remember the name that they make with their feet none um well it's, it's made in a tandoori oven so i don't know what they would i don't remember if they called it that or so like not, everybody, yeah. everybody would eat that and they would buy bags of it to eat. I just didn't eat anything. I tried 
somebody's tea once and that was it because I was just so terrified of having an experience like Will where I would just be puking and shit my brains out that I was like no I'm gonna pass on all of that um but like the water bottle situation my biggest pet peeve was on my second deployment we were on this like tiny little fob that was all tents and then we had a gym right it was just a tent but people would get water bottles and they'd bring them into the gym and they wouldn't finish them and they would just set them on the ground next to the garbage can and it would drive me fucking insane because I'm like dumped water out you're gonna throw away a water bottle with water in it it doesn't make any freaking sense so I was the weird guy that would like open up all the water bottles and dump the water in the ground not every hero wears a cape yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that you lived at Tell the Tale, too. Yeah. It's funny because, like, right outside any IP station or any base, there's just a big fucking pile of trash right there because they just bomb it over the wall. And you're here night collapsing each bottle down, making good room for the recycling, all right. But then the reality is they just toss it over the wall and burn it. Yeah, nobody cares. And, like, that was the other funny thing, too. At my first deployment, we were down by Najaf for a long time, and they would have these people that would have a, like, open wagon and they would just ride around town and like pick up garbage but it was just an endless like garbage like they would fill up those wagons but there was still just more and more garbage like everybody just chucked their stuff outside of their house and then that was it like that's yeah. where we leave our shit and that was I had tough. a weird yeah i had a weird experience because i went to california and i went to la uh and downtown la i was like i looked at my friend and i was like this reminds me of iraq because there was like there was dirt, like a light dusting of dirt and then just garbage everywhere. And I was like, holy crap, LA reminds me of freaking Iraq. It was so weird. I had the same experience in New York City. It was like 2007 or 2008 and it was trash day and it was just like mounded up over my head. So at least five foot eight inches tall. And, uh, <laughs> and, and like there was like some vendor nearby and just the smells of sort of like garbage rotting everywhere. And tasty street food, like wafting in. Yeah. You know, it was just yeah. like, oh, like, oh, right back there for a sack, you know. For real. Yeah. So what was the rest of your deployment like, Travis? You guys got to collapse down that small fob. You're kind of breaking down Fallujah. Yeah, we'd be basically. So, you know, when I got there, it was a fully functioning base. Um, and then we uh, we ended up shutting down the, the, the larger base and we set up like a temporary you know, smaller perimeter, and man, that was a ton of work. Uh, you know, all the engineers and guys, they had these, I call them Jersey berries, but I mean, they were 20 feet tall and they just went after the other, just kept, <laughs> I think about the amount of concrete that went into that wall. It's pretty intense. Um, so yeah, and then we, we kind of brought the base down. All of the services started leaving, um, you know, one by one, uh, eventually to the point where it got down to, there was, there was nothing on base. Um, <clears throat> it was kind of nice though, cause all the higher ups left too. So <laughs> towards the very end, it was really just, uh, you know, probably the highest ranking guy was a Sergeant, you know, so a little more flexibility on what you could do and, you know, how, how often you had to shave. Um, but now I don't think a lot of these bases are known for like a leave no trace policy. Like, I think it's pretty well known that some shit just gets left and so like how much was there anything that you guys just left and we're like all right well that's their problem now tons tons like we so on the fobs specifically i'm not sure about the base because once services started getting shutting down like we stopped going to the chow hall so i don't know what was left in you know those areas um but i i know what the fob i mean we had a full functioning weight room that i don't even know how it got there but there was one there 
Uh, we left all that equipment. We left a couple, like four fridges that were in the, um, the generators, the pumps. I mean, we left everything. Um, it's cheaper to leave it there than to ship it anywhere. It's yeah. But that's at that point, that's the math you're doing. And like, like, do we ship it home or do we leave it? And I, you know, that I think that's another interesting part of, of war or combat or however you want to call it. That like most people probably don't even know of. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like as that base was getting like smaller and smaller and you had less and less people there, did you feel a little more fragile? Like, did you feel like you could be attacked a little more easily or how did you guys feel about that? At some point, someone told me, and you know, it's hard to really get into the the minds of, of, you know, Iraqis or whoever, you know, insurgents are on the other side of where we were, um, is they, they told me that they weren't attacking us because they wanted us to leave. And if they were, if we, they were to attack us, we would stay and bunker down and, you know, kind of like re-engage the area. And it was easier if we were just out. Um, maybe I bought into that a little too easily. <laughs> it, it gave me a layer of comfort that like, I don't know, you still, you still were diligent and, you know, did all the things you were supposed to do. But as far as like it getting, I don't know, scarier from a personal point of view, I, I felt kind of secure in the fact that we weren't going to get attacked and we never did. So, um, how long were you there? How long long were you in country? Um, I wasn't, so the the group that I, that I joined had already, they were there for a full 13 months. Um, I joined towards the tail end. So I would say I was in country for four months. So pretty short compared to others that had deployed. Well, that's kind of funny because like yesterday, you know, Karen mentioned we had somebody else that that episode's been released, but, you know, in the Rangers, that, that four months was a standard deployment. And so like, you know, looking at the different branches, Army was doing 12 to 18, you know, Marine Corps at the time was, you said 13 months, was that like the standard deployment length? It really varied um, on needs, but yeah, I think, I think one year was the standard and then transition periods, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, you guys wrap it up, you get out of there. How much longer were you in the military or, or what was that like? Yeah, I had another, I think a year, a whole another year after that. Um, it was kind of weird because I had, jo- you know, I joined this other unit. So it wasn't even guys that I had really known before I got into country. Um, and then when I came home, I had, was still attached to the unit. You know, I was kind of like temporarily assigned. Um, so when I got home, I just kind of pieced out. And it was interesting because, you know, a lot of those guys, when they get back, um, back into, into the U S they go through stages of like reintegration and they go to classes, you know, they spend almost like a month of like reintegration and kind of like, you know, get welcome home. Like here are the things and processing and all this stuff. And I pieced out and I went right back to my unit and started doing the work I was doing before I left. And it's kind of a weird jarring, like, you know, at the time I was glad that I didn't have to go through the, you know, the bullshit of sitting, listening to a chaplain talk about, you know, your mental health, like, cause I didn't have anything wrong. I was perfectly fine. Like, you don't need to tell me about it. Um, so at the time I thought it was a, a, a perk that I got to go back to my unit, but I think in hindsight, it probably set me up for failure when I, when I eventually left. Well, so it was a culture shock. I remember, you know, we get back and land on a plane in the middle of the night and then all of a sudden we got two weeks of block leave. And that was just like, it was just really weird because I went into Los Angeles too and there was parts of Los Angeles that reminded me of it. And I was just like, 
and this is so weird. I don't know if you got block leave or were you, were you back at work just the next day? I think I had like a couple days off, but yeah, I was pretty much back at work. Um, there was, there was some like processing that, you know, I had to essentially take the TAD and go back to my base. So there was, even though I was back at my unit, I still had to do like paperwork processing where I'd go to all the different units and sign back in and that kind of shit. So it was really probably a week and a half before I was like back doing work. How were your peers? How did they react to your return? It was just like, Hey, here's the work that we saved oh. for you. I mean, it was whatever. Check your emails. Yeah, no, none, yeah, of, none, of, the, none of the check your emails, but I mean, you just kind of, and at that time I was a corporal. So, um, just kind of picked up whatever ownership I could pick up and just ran with it. So, um, yeah. Did it take you a while to like get back technically into the flow of your job? Was it weird going from sitting behind that 50 cal that crew served on the vehicle to turning wrenches on avionics stuff? And had, you know, I don't getting... think so. I hadn't been gone that long. Um, you know, total between like processing to leave and then reprocessing when I came back is probably like a six month leave. So I really wasn't that long to where I lost it. Um, and some of the more interesting things that I remember coming back is um, <laughs> driving a personal vehicle. Yeah. How, how well the gas and brakes work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, on the, cause I would also drive the MRAPs and the, and the Humvees and you basically got to put the pedal all the way to the floor to get it to even go. And then when you hit the brakes, you got to like really give it to it. And I remember the first time getting back in, I had to like reacquaint myself, with like don't slam on these things because they will accelerate <laughs> and stop quickly. And nobody else moves out of your way when you're driving down the middle of the road, right? Start driving down the middle of the road. All of a sudden you're just in line and traffic. And like, I just remember that feeling of sitting still and how anxiety provoking it was. It was like, oh man, I'm just a sitting duck here in traffic. Yeah, there was a few times where like, yeah, I found it mostly in neighborhoods. Um, city traffic, I think there was just so much going on and just accepted the craziness. But then when you're in, when you're in the rural areas, I thought it was really interesting when you, you kind of just get into a flow and there's not a lot of traffic, not a lot of people, but then all of a sudden there's like a kid playing and he like runs to the curb to like get a ball and like your mind immediately goes to like, shit, yeah. like turn, swerve, like, you know, and you're like, nope, he's just a kid playing in his yard. Like <laughs> it was like, but it's those, it's not really like you thinking through, it's just like your instantaneous, um, reaction to a situation and then you kind of laugh about it a second later but yeah well travis i can definitely relate uh and i know a couple other guys that i was de deployed with uh, definitely sort of some changes over time as it relates to anxiety behind the wheel and you know especially that sort of activity near the side of the road and just being being in tight traffic it's definitely a something that's i've noticed unfortunately it's kind of mellowed for me over the last few years. There are times when, you know, road rage and just aggressive driving was characteristic of how I would behave on the, on the streets. Yeah. And the garbage on the funny. side of the road. Yeah, well, the garbage. And I think it's funny that you mentioned the personal car too. Cause when, so for a lot of nurses at that time, we were attached to units. We didn't have like a home unit. So we would do the same thing, right? We'd come back and it'd be like, okay, welcome to country, get on this plane and go home. There was no like processing or whatever. And my wife picked me up and I remember sitting in the passenger seat feeling like I was going to die because we were going so fast. And I looked over and we we're going 30 <laughs> miles an hour. <Yep. laughs> 
Yeah, what do we top out? Once you start hitting, like, what is it, 45 or 50 miles an hour, the engine's just, like, roaring at you. Like, dude, not go this fast. Uh, that's the only thing I always thought was funny, going back to, you know, being in country, is, you know, our vehicles would max out, but the Iraqis had normal vehicles, and we would use their highways, and we had rules where they can't pass us on the highway. So we would be driving at 45. <laughs> I just think about that back home. If there was some like asshole tractor. in my road, in my highway, going 45 miles an hour on the highway, I'd be flipping it. You'd become an insurgent over traffic, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> or the pace car for like the Iraqi 500. <laughs> Iraqi, Iraqi two, like both laps. <laughs> well, I always thought it was interesting because you know they, at least where I was, they had um, they had a two lane highway and a you know kind of like how we have here, two lanes here and then two lanes oncoming, and then they had a big. Uh, ditch in the middle but the ditch was all sand and they would go into the ditch go onto the opposite side into oncoming traffic but like i think they had done it so yeah. they just knew hey stay on your side i'll stay on my side and we're gonna pass each other going like 60 miles an hour and then i'll cut back over when we pass this convoy dude how hard is that adjustment like you get so used to this wild west of driving and then even seeing their wild west of driving like i remember the same thing they, they cross over and just like they seem to work it out. That was never a problem. But then you get back to the States and everything's just so constrained and, and regulated. That it's, it's a hell of an adjustment to make. Yeah. I feel like my experience with traffic circles over in Iraq was like way easier than in the States. Like they just, they just get it. And it's like way more chaotic because there's like four lanes and all and everything. But like they just seem to get it. And then in the States here, like people are just all jacked up. They don't know what to do. I think the expectation was that it was going to be chaotic. And so like everybody kind of went into it and just – just knew what it was going to be where in the states it's just not that way yeah 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 we definitely have the 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 issue i mean we, we we abide so much by rules and regulations that everyone just lives by the rules but there are so many situations when driving where those rules get ambiguous and so we all you know instead of living in that structure of like well, everyone just follow the rules you know other other nations follow the well, why don't you just pay attention while driving and have some looser rules and we'll figure it out as we go into each situation. Whereas we're just like, well, I have the right of way. So I'm just going to go, I'm not going to look because I have the right of way, you know, it's a whole different philosophy of driving. So do you feel like after you got back, do you feel like you had this kind of transition period of like, Oh yeah, I'm fine. I definitely got reacclimated. And then there was kind of a rebound sensation of maybe I'm not so acclimated and maybe I do have like, some things I need to work on to get more situated back in the States. Yeah. So like I said, I was, I was in the Marine Corps for a whole nother year after I got back and that was a pretty smooth transition. I would say um, I did have some symptoms like uh, I would call them symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but very minor, you know, I would wake up in the middle of the night uh, next to my girlfriend at the time. And I would like stare at her like death stare, like, what are you doing here? Like, you know, I didn't remember these things, but she would tell me and she was kind of like freaking out a little bit. And then I would just go back to sleep, but that stuff kind of went away after a couple months. Um, but I think just being in the military and being part of a mission and, you know, having a regular work schedule and being around like-minded individuals, um, it didn't really bring any sort of severe symptoms. Um, so it was a really seamless integration back into military life because I'm still in the military. Uh, it wasn't until I left the military is when that kind of framework fell apart and, you know, my purpose was no longer there. And that's when things really started uh, 
showing their true colors and I started noticing some issues. Well, so you got out of the military. How did that manifest itself? Yeah, how did it manifest itself? And when, uh, and when was that? I think Adam would know. Yeah, so I got out of the military in 2010, went right to college, um, didn't, didn't miss a beat. I was out in July um, of 2010, and then I was in college in August of 2010. So nice work. Uh, get, get at her, pitter patter. Let's get at her. Um, when I first got back, it was fine. Cause I was partying and having fun and seeing friends from high school and all that stuff. Um, but then I started going to college and it was just different because college is it's in a way it's a selfish thing. You know, you're there for yourself. You have no one to worry about. You have no crew. You have, I had no friends cause I you know, I went to a town that I didn't know anybody. Um, so I think that lack of, of community and lack of something kind of left me out hanging out to dry. Um, I started self isolating. I would drink a lot. Uh, I think I was feeling depression. Um, a lot of these things though, were not problems for me at the time because I had identified them as not being problems. Um, I just put them under the umbrella that life is hard and, you know, figure your shit out. When you were looking left and right at that time, what were you seeing that was different about your peers' lives versus your life? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because I went to school as a 24, 25 year old guy, having been, you know, in the military through some, you know, situations that not many have gone through. And now my peers are 18 and 19 year old college students who had just graduated high school. And I was no different than them when I was at that point in my life, but I'm no longer at that point in my life. And they are now my peers. Uh, there was a lot of frustration with them. Um, unjustly. So, you know, I think I got mad at a lot, you know, cause they just, they would complain about things that I thought were irrelevant or no, not an issue. Um, and for some reason that would really like get at my core, like, this is not a problem guys. Like there are bigger things to worry about. And for some reason that would really rile me up. Um, so I was, I was probably your typical angry veteran that, you know, stereotyped out there. I think I still do that now though. Like you, you hear people like complaining about, you know, their social media not working out or, or what, what not like luxury they can't have now. And it's just like, it could be way worse. Like, I don't know, deal with it, suck it up. So mm -hmm. I feel like that mentality almost never leaves you because you have been through some stuff that you had to like fight and struggle to get to. And you had to like go through some situations where you're like, wow, this really fucking sucks. But you know, you deal with it and you move on. Whereas if you, if your life has just been, you know, delightfully unstressful, right. you know, you're just like, Oh yeah, whatever. I'm curious about like when you're going through this time of your life and you're kind of feeling the things that you described, right? And you, and you, you mentioned that like drinking was a big part of your behavior at that time. And like doing that social referencing with your peers, did you feel like your drinking as a vet was different than the drinking that those college kids were doing partying or how did that kind of fit together? Or is it not really a piece of it? It was a little bit of a piece I think the difference being is that I didn't really drink with anybody i didn't really you know and i i came of the mind that like drinking isn't cool drinking is just a thing 
And um, I think that was the main difference between like a lot of the peers I had is, you know, there's like a, a cultural like neatness to underage drinking and, you know, just you know, being young and drinking and partying and having fun. Whereas I didn't have that element of it. I kind of had this weird, I'll call it a air quotes adult, you know, view of drinking that I don't know. I looked at them and thought they were childish and really probably my drinking was more childish than theirs. They were just had drinking to have fun and I was drinking to be, you know, masking issues that. <laughs> I don't so know. how'd you, how were you able to identify that for what it was and make a change? Um, you know, so a lot of what I did, I, I, it wasn't just drinking when I, cause you know, in, in the military, you're not allowed to do anything. Right. So when I got out of the military, I was like, shit, I missed my whole twenties. I missed my, you know, all the fun stuff. So I started doing weed. I started drinking or well, drinking more, which I've, I've always done, but, um, drinking more. And then I even tried some, um, harder drugs just to try it, you know, see what it was like, kind of live that life. Um, it was not, not great. I hit kind of a rock bottom. Um, one of my semesters, I think it was my second semester. Um, you know, cause my first semester wasn't so bad as kind of getting going, but then the second semester in school, I kind of, you know, tripped and fell on my face. Um, my GPA for that semester was a 0 0.59. Um, give you, Did you get a D in. So it was, uh, hey, there's semester. something happening there. It's not a straight zero. Why do that tiny bit of work? <laughs> yeah. So, um, through all this though, I, you know, there was never an issue. I was never, never anything wrong with me. So, you know, I just like needing to like figure my shit out. Um, somewhere along the way I was, I was walking in the hallways in school and I saw a banner for, um, this breath work. Um, that I've now come to be a, a volunteer for, but um, they were looking for participants to veteran participants to do a study at the University of Wisconsin with the Weissman Center. And basically what they wanted you to do is sit through a seven day breathwork course and they were going to pay you like 700 bucks. And I was like money. Um, <laughs> And the other aspect of it too, was that I didn't join for my own reasonings. I joined because this, whatever this thing was, it was going to help other veterans. And I was like, I'm all about that. I'm all about helping those that need help, which wasn't me, but other people needed help. And I was going to, you know, facilitate that cause. So I went to this breath workshop. It was like a couple hours. Uh, I think it was like four or three or four hours every day for seven days straight. Um, we went through, we did kind of like breath work where you do breathe in different breathing patterns. Um, you do a little bit of meditation, um, that kind of stuff. It's a little bit of um, processing of just, you know, discussion processing, but really it's more breath work focused. Um, it was through that process and through other individuals, other veterans going through the same process um, that kind of opened me up to, oh, like I am, I am, not as good as I thought I was. And I see now in hindsight, like why I was tripping up, what's going wrong. Uh, it was kind of my aha moment. Um, so that's kind of what got me onto the track of like, okay, I'm not as good as I thought it was. And I'm not in the, I, I'm now in the other category, the category that I put everybody else in except for myself. Um, which, you know, it's, it's really kind of a pinnacle moment in a lot of people's lives because 
and I would, I would argue that most people are in that category, you know, is, does anybody not have anxiety or stress? Like, you know, if you are, you're probably lying to yourself. Um, so I, I think at least identifying that, that, that there's room to work there, I think opened up the floodgate and I kind of, um, from that point forward had done a lot of work on, on healing and talking to other veterans. Uh, one of the first things I did that helped me a lot was started getting involved in veteran organizations. Um, it helped for two reasons. One, to talk to other people that have been through similar experiences, but then two, to get that sense of community back. So, I mean, it makes me feel good to be volunteering and to helping people. Like that's, I think, at some level, I think that's why most people join the military is they want to do some good and they like being a part of a community of other people doing good. And so when you leave that, you now have left that identity of like being a part of a greater organization with a greater mission. Um, so I, I reapply that in the civilian world, getting involved with volunteering with nonprofits, um, which is, has been kind of, one of the more healing things for me, it's a, it's a lot of work, you know, it's, I won't say, at times it's stressful. And like, you know, this Adam having kind of lifted up a, a, a nonprofit in the Madison area, but it's a lot of work, but at the same time, like it's the fulfillment you get from it and the purpose that it gives you um, is amazing. Yeah. We joked around in our, our first or kind of our episode zero is like the reason we all kind of commit to some of these things, even, you know, this podcast project that we're working on is that like, you, trust me, we're getting a lot back. You know, it's like, you know, we're hopefully setting up other people's opportunities up for success. Kind of like what you were doing when you walked into the Weissman center, you're like, all right, if not for me, for somebody else, but then it, it really does come back around and it does give you a lot back. And yeah, you know, we get to selflessly serve. Like you said, we get our purpose back. You know, it's, it's, I think it's super helpful. Yeah, definitely. Travis, I'm, I'm curious, was there like a specific interaction with someone when you realize like, Oh, I'm not in this box. I'm in that box. Like, was there like a triggering point that you like, or was it just kind of a progression that eventually you kind of saw what it was? I'll, I'll say that it was a little bit of both. So I had gone through the course and I kind of realized I was like, okay, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was, but like, you know, a small, you know, diversion to the right path. It wasn't until um, the person who had facilitated that study, uh, her name is Emma Sapala. Um, she would later become an awesome mentor for me, but I want to say it was months down the road and she's like, how are things going? And, you know, with the breathing and everything school, she kind of was like a generic question that she asked, but it was at that moment that I had looked back and I realized the path that I was on and the path where I had been and like this, this drastic difference of where I was and where I am now. And it was at that point that I could really see how bad things were back then that I couldn't see when I was in that moment. So it was a little bit of, you know, that general progression, but then that moment of like looking back and kind of like self-reflecting and self-analyzing and, and noticing the, the huge change and the, and the positivity that I had brought into my life. Um, it's funny to me that you mentioned the trajectory. You had to be on a better trajectory and get a little different perspective to appreciate the trouble that you were in. And I feel like that process is hard to hard to overstate how nuanced that whole process is and how almost 
uh, mindless it can become without just true focus and intention. And I just, uh, you know, I think the more that people talk about their experiences like that and, you know, connect with others to create that sort of empathy, that's, I think that's hugely important. So I appreciate it. Yeah. And an interesting thing, maybe some people work this way. I think most don't. It's, it's not really a light switch, right? You don't go through some process or some, you know, you don't go to the VA and talk to a counselor or, you know, go through a breath workshop or anything. And all of a sudden a light switch and you're like, boom, I'm good. Right. It just sets you down a path. And so at first those changes are minimal and you don't really notice them. But as you keep going to counseling or as you keep, you know, doing volunteering for organizations, you really start to um, grow in that aspect. And then upon self-reflection, then you can really see the huge impact in the progression in your life and your development. Um, but usually it's not like a, there's not like a single pill or something that's going to like be like, okay, my life's great now. Perfect. You know, I, mean, I like to think about it as like the work doesn't get done in the doctor's office or sitting there, like you said, chatting with your counselor, the work gets done as you're living your life and just showing up to different things closer to the way you want to be, you know, closer to something you can be proud of. Right. Right. You know, I think counselors do a great job. You know, I think it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's your own efforts in it. So like part of your efforts is, going to see counseling, right? And keeping with it, not going once or twice and being like, okay, I hope that worked. It's like keeping with it and that, and that constant progression um, of seeking to be better. And I, this is something that I've, you know, cause I talked about that aha moment where I looked back and I was like, okay, great. Wow. I made these awesome changes. There was a part of me a little bit down the road where I'm like, I'm good. That was awesome. I'm glad that worked for me. And then I stopped doing anything. And it kind of went back into, I mean, it, was, it didn't go back to the, the depths and the, that it was before, but like it definitely started regressing again. And so I think keeping the mentality that it's a lifestyle of like, keep with stuff, you know, keep moving forward and keep, um, you know, keep doing whatever's working for you. Something that stands out to me, like in my role as a mental health provider these days, is that when people want to kind of go through a change and they, they're kind of getting to that point that you don't have to knock the whole house down and start from scratch. Like you probably have a good foundation already there. You even probably have some good bones and structure. Let's just kind of do something a little bit different and kind of start there. And that like, I think eventually if we metaphorically look down at our compass and you turn three degrees to the right and then start walking, the longer you walk, the further you get from it. And you didn't have to make a big movement. You didn't have to make a 180 degree change in your life. You just made a simple shift and let it build from there and kind of, you know, maintain those habits. You noticed when they kind of fell apart, but then you noticed when they fell apart because you had enough distance and enough contrast to be able to feel it. And, you know, I try to encourage folks for that. We don't need to make a big change here. Just do something small and kind of see where it takes you. Mm-hmm. I think my experience and all that was like, I would push really hard to, you know, make changes and get better at things and improve on stuff to the point where I would get like exhausted of it. And it's almost like I needed to take a break. And like, I, I've been seeing somebody at the vet center in Madison for like three years now. Um, so we've kind of had this flow of like, we hit it really hard and then back off a little bit, but at the same time, I'm still going I'm still, you know, seeing her and still working on stuff. It's just not as much of a push as it is because I don't know, like I, some of my stuff, like it's, it's, it was, I was just physically and mentally exhausted from it where I needed time to like 
decompress almost and like do self-reflection and be like, okay, so we started at this point and now we're here, you know, it was, so I think it's kind of a, a different approach and pattern for everybody, but like all of you guys are saying, like, it's, it's just a constant thing that you have to just keep trying and working at. Here, you get a, you let me know, uh, like for me, the analogy of processing and like recovering from a big workout in the gym is kind of analogous or pretty similar. You know what I mean? And I think that's fair to say is like, you got to give yourself space to, you know, just as if you like ripped a set of bicep curls, you need to let those fibers heal so they can get stronger. When you start doing that heavy emotional lifting, like you can push and push and push, but you got to give yourself a chance to let the, let the healing happen. Let, you know, let those new coping strategies sort of strengthen you, you know, and, and make sure that like, you know, you, you're not putting yourself on some arbitrary timeline that you have permission to just do the things you need to do on in the time on the timeline that you need to do them. Writing that analogy a little more too, though, you got to have that built schedule. So it's intentional and you, you build rest, build rest, build rest, always getting stronger and better. Right. Yeah. One of the most rewarding things, um, and with some of the volunteer stuff that I do, um, you know, there's your own healing path, right. But then when you're helping other people, you know, you kind of see them whenever they come to you and whatever state they're in, but then there's that like building the relationship and then eventually seeing where they've been and like some of the stories of people and what they've overcome and who, you know, the, how they've changed their trajectory has just been one of the most rewarding things about volunteering in the veteran community. Um, Aspirational. There's so many people to look up to and accomplishments to be proud of vicariously you know for on your buddy's behalf mm -hmm. there's been plenty of people that i've like veterans that i've talked to and they've told me kind of their lowest of the low and it's from what i know of them it's like oh my god i can't even imagine you ever being like that because the person i see in front of me today is like is like the polar opposite you know what i mean just because they've worked so hard to overcome this stuff the stuff that they did I think that says a lot about the power of forgiveness though, because like military folks, you know, we know about the standard and if we're high performers, we're going to meet that standard because lives could be at risk. Right. So when you mess up or do something wrong or experience that moral distress, you know, and I'm, I'm glad we brought that up today, but uh, you got to be able to forgive yourself so you can start enjoying things again and start doing things that are healthy and, you know, building back. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, a lot of people hold themselves to a, a I would say an unreasonable standard. Um, having the ability for self forgiveness is a huge aspect. Um, you know, realizing that we all make mistakes and that, you know, no one's perfect and then moving forward, you know, to live a better life and to, you know, maybe have a greater impact in the communities that you want to serve, but don't hold your back. Don't hold yourself back due to some, you know, some mistake or some incident in your past. Yeah, you bet. Got to keep moving forward. So Travis, beyond those sorts of uh, edifying things, the community service, the, the veteran service, the, you know, volunteering and your family, uh, what else are you involved in now? Um, whew, what am I not involved in? <laughs> My problem is that I try and get involved in too much and then I end up spreading myself too thin. Um, one of the, one of the big 
projects that I've been involved with is, is the Breathwork Project. Um, it's, a, it's a program called Project Welcome Home Troops. Um, it's a great program. It's the one that, you know, kicked me off onto the right path. Um, we do have a chapter here in Madison, Wisconsin, but we also have chapters all over. We have um, chapters in Chicago, San Diego, you know, East Coast, West Coast, all over. Um, but it's a free service to veterans and their families. Um, it's all volunteer run. Um, and it provides, um, provides breath-based tools to help decrease, you know, stress, anxiety, sleep problems, um, kind of help with mental focus and a really, um, reconnecting with that connection with others and, and developing that sense of purpose. That sounds great. Is that like your main gig or what else? I would say that's probably my main gig. Um, <clears throat> some other things that I've got involved with, which, you know, I really encourage others if they're listening to, to get involved with these two, you know, uh, Madison has a pretty awesome veterans court. I know Milwaukee does too. Um, they're always looking for mentors to uh, work with, work with the people going through those, you know, the, the veterans court, if, if anyone's not familiar with it is a court similar to drug court, alcohol court, um, where the reason for the incident was not due to nefarious purposes, but, you know, is really due to an addiction that you have or some sort of issue that you have. Um, so for veterans court, um, it's people that were coping with symptoms of post-traumatic stress and having done something because of that. And to, you know, instead of just punishing them, for you know having those symptoms and doing whatever it is that they did it's working with them to heal so um and it's not just like letting people off the hook it comes with a treatment plan um, which is amazing so it's it's really focusing on helping veterans um through whatever it is they're dealing with um just so we're not leaving our, our veterans to you know hang out to dry in our court system so um awesome program there yeah, that's cool. I'm actually, you know, Ray Trent, the volunteer coordinator, and I'm involved. I have a, a mentee who's going through Veterans Treatment Corps now, and it's a, it's kind of a wild experience. One thing I will say is, like, for me, when I got back, uh, you know, after some time, I started looking for guys like me. Like, where are my peers, right? Where are the other veterans who ended up in this area? And I couldn't find them. Uh, outside a few isolated pockets and I got to vets court and I'm like, Oh, here they are. They're just as involved. <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, it's, it is a great thing to do. You know, it's a great, it's a, it's nice to see uh, Dane County, the local one here, the support that's coalescing around, you know, these, these vets who are going through tough times. There's a, there's another, the same office is involved in um, like a barracks behind bars here at, in, in the jail for, veterans who do get incarcerated and stuff like that. So like veterans justice projects are, those are huge things. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually, I also worked with a um, veteran integration. So veterans that did serve time in prison, um, but now they're getting out and reintegrating and, and it's wild right. to think about like people that went in before there were even computers and now welcome, like, yeah, figure out how to yeah, do so it. Like talk about culture shock. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something that's come up in some of the grad school stuff I'm involved in now is like, I think a lot of people fail to consider the very long-term consequences of like 
things that we as a society agree to do, like sending soldiers to war or incarcerating people because folks come back and they get out. You know? And then what are they supposed to do? Because, you know, 30 years could have gone by or a skill set might be completely inappropriate or whichever. But, you know, just interesting questions. And I'm glad I'm glad that you're uh, in a position to engage with that challenging community work and sort of spread the gospel that we're all in this together. And, mm-hmm. you know, got to find find the gaps and tighten them up. Well, the wild thing is, you know, because I, I worked with a, a mentee, I want to say it was two years ago now. Um, but as I was sitting through a lot of those courts and hearing everyone's stories and you kind of, you know, get weekly check-ins, how are things going? A lot of the time I'd be sitting there thinking this could easily have been me. You know, I've, yeah, if not blatantly done what they did, um, I've come close to it. And so realizing that there's really not like them and me, it's us. And yeah. Yeah, you bet. hundred percent, man. So what do you, what drove you to working with the vet court and the reintegration projects? Um, I think really just getting involved, you know, cause I, I worked at a, um, when I was going through college, I was part of the uh, vets group there at UW Madison. Um, they were called vets for vets at the time. I think they've now changed their name. I forget what it is. Veterans, educators, and traditional students. That's what it is. Uh, vets acronym. But um, through that, you kind of get, you know, a lot of those different um, resources in the community and just hearing about opportunities that are out there. And so I would kind of get involved with as many as I could. Um, Cause there's just a lot of, a lot of cool things happening out there and, and getting involved with them is, um, I don't know, it was really good for me and for my sense of purpose. For sure. And then you get that aspect of feeling like you're, you know, part of the team in a community again. So it's like a win-win for everybody. Yeah. And that's really one of the things that I miss most about leaving the military is being a part of that greater community. You know, it's something you never even think about while you're in because you're a part of it and, you know, you have that sense of brotherhood or sisterhood. Um, but when you leave it, there's that gap or that void and, Sometimes you don't even know that there, that why that void exists, but when you start to fill it again, it feels really good. Very cool. What's uh, you know, what have you been able to kind of, you know, you talk about going from a college student, kind of what's your current setting as far as the things you've accumulated or maybe, uh, you know, where you're at in your station today to, to, that reflects the, the amount of work that you've put in? Um, you know, since in the last couple of years, um, one of the biggest things that have, have kind of like thrown me forward is, is having a family. Um, met my wife in college right after a lot of this stuff. Um, and ended up having a kid and that having a child really changes your outlook on life. Um, and I think that I no longer look at my life through my own lenses, but how my son will perceive my actions. Um, that has been kind of one of my, at least for me, my own driving force. Um, for some reason, it's hard for me to self-motivate. Um, but when there's other people on the line, that seems that, you know, help kick me in the ass. So, um, yeah, that's definitely been uh, one of my big driving forces is, is, you know, having family and that sense of purpose as far as um, being an individual that they can look up to and, yeah, doing good in their eyes. That's great, dude. That's, again, aspirational, you know? It's like living up to 
our hopes for that next generation. That's awesome, man. I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing everything today. Like, you know, getting to know you a little bit better, hearing about all the work that you've done, your experience in the military, getting out and things like that. You know, if you could go back in time, you know, in retrospect, hindsight is always twenty twenty. that if you could go back and talk to yourself back when you were 18, 17 years old, when you were thinking about joining, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Oh, <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I don't even know if I would talk to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing myself back then, I don't know if there's anything I could say other than like keep the path. Um, because like a lot of my experiences through the military and then even getting out, um, hit me hard. Like it was hard life lessons that I, in, in hindsight, I wouldn't have wanted to avoid. Um, yeah, that's the worst part, isn't it? Where you, you, you see where you stand and you find out you're, you're right where you're supposed to be. And then you're like, mm -hmm. well, shit, that means I was supposed to suffer. Right. I was supposed yeah. to go down this path that like, it can suck in a way, but it's like in a way that it's kind of, you embrace it just a bit. You know, and as far as like, pers like character goes, um, I don't know who this quote is or whatever, but you know, they say happiness gives us breath, but our sadness and, and hard times give us depth. And oh, so to nice. have a real, you know, sense of depth of character, you need to have the hardships, right? You can't just go through life, you know, everything being hunky dory. Um, you know, you got to have the good with the bad. And, you know, I think it really helps develop that character and, and develops a well-rounded individual. I think the Marine Corps would be proud to, to consider you one of their own. You know, it, you had some bumps in the road, but you've ironed them out. You, you've got your character. You've got your, your honor and integrity. Your value system you built up. You're trying to reflect on to your, your children and things like that. You know, I, I think you got an awesome story. Yeah, thanks. I, uh, it's definitely been a wild ride, but it's been a good ride. Well, yeah, definitely. Thanks for coming on and, uh, and sharing. That's great. I, I look forward to like, you know, it's a small community, so I can't imagine like not rubbing elbows with you again. Like I'm over <laughs> across plains. Sun Prairie is not too far away. So I'm just like matter of time until we bump into each other again. But uh, yeah, for sure. Karen, do you want to get us out of here with some rapid fire questions? Absolutely. Um, I have like five or six. Yeah. So Shoot. Uh, they'll be very easy. Uh, what was your favorite MRE? Oh God. Um, honestly, it was, it was the, uh, it was the chicken when you put peanut butter in it. You have to get two different ones, but you don't you have to do some butter. trading, a little barter economy there. <laughs> I have to get that recipe. <laughs> okay. What was the worst thing that you ate while you were in the military? This includes basic training and all that stuff. Uh, Chicken. Probably the omelet the MRE. Oh, <laughs> oh that's two in a row. The egg omelet. You can't ask us that, but okay, cool. <laughs> that is funny. Okay, what was the most uncomfortable mode of transportation that you had? That I've ever had? In the, Yeah, in the military. <sighs> Honestly, it's probably the C-130. Really? Um, yeah, so they have the side seats. And so on the way out there, I got the benefit of being on a side seat, but then they have these cargo seats and as you're flying, they're like chained down to the cargo bay. 
so it's just like a whole rows of seating, like theater seating, but it's on like this platform and the platform gets loaded onto the plane. And so as you're sitting there trying to sleep, you're slowly rocking forward, hitting the ends of the boundary and going, and then you, <laughs> you rock backwards. <laughs> so this whole ride, you just forward, backwards, forward, backwards. It was, it was terrible. This C-130 lullaby, wham, wham, coup contra coup. <laughs> so the worst part of that I remember was distracting because at the time we had Nintendo DSs that we were all like playing via Bluetooth. Yeah. And like you couldn't do your Tiger Woods golf swing with the stylus <laughs> when you were bumping around or would throw off your shot. And you'd be like, crap. And we <laughs> and the, well, again. you can hold it on top of all your bags, you know? So it's like you can't even hold it in the right spot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What was the highest and lowest PT score that you got? <sighs> lowest. What is my lowest? Probably in the 20. So on a scale of 300 for the Marine Corps, probably my lowest is like 227. Uh, my highest being 294. And it was always the, the run. I think you needed like 17 minutes or something to get a perfect run. And I could never, I could never shave off those lats. So I think my best PT was like the best three mile run was 17 minutes and like 46 seconds or something like that. So. Gotcha. Um, so is there a really good basic training story or deployment story that we did not cover? Uh, Gross would be great. What's that? Something gross would be great. Gross. Yeah, this uh, podcast is actually set up to be explicit. So we actually have to, <laughs> that's the standard we, we have, have to, to achieve every single time. <laughs> um, so when we were leaving Fallujah, so we, when I was on the FOB, uh, we had a burn pit, um, like much like the base burn pits, but just a smaller version of it. And so we were, we had to get rid of everything. So we burned everything. And some of those things were um, came out of you <laughs> propane tanks, and oh. we are some pretty large explosions. We actually got a call from the main base, being like, "We're hearing some some fire. Like, are you guys okay?" And we're like, "Yep, we're doing good. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Just the bird. Keep her moving. It's fine. Moving. That actually sounds really fun. Uh, it was awesome. So, how long have you been on quarantine now? <laughs> Uh, since Thursday, so nine days. Okay. What have you spent the most time doing since you've been on quarantine? Uh, sitting in front of this fucking computer between grad school, work, and uh, yeah. And then being locked in my office, so there's not much else to do, like, you know, web surfing or whatever. Uh, <laughs> this is all I do is sit at this freaking desk and uh, I'm ready to go out and see the world when I'm all done with this. At least you have grad school work. Like, I think most people are just spending a, a ton of time on social media, just scrolling and scrolling. Yeah. So at See, least you're being productive. I, uh, well, not by choice. <laughs> <laughs> Self-inflicted pain. But yeah, I always laugh and people are like, I'm bored. I'm like, what is boredom like? Like, how does that, that sounds fun. Like, <laughs> although I know when I do get bored, I hate myself. So, but when you're busy, it does sound awesome. Absolutely. All right. That's it. You made it through the rapid fire questions. Congratulations. Nice. Well done. Do I get a participation trophy? Yeah, sure. We'll send oh, it. Yeah, yeah, it's in the mail. Send it yeah. in the mail. <laughs> that and like a good conduct medal or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Good cookie. Yeah, that sounds good. Should, uh, we should consider adding that to our rapid fire questions. Like, hey, did you ever get 
administrative punish or MJP or captain's master article 15. Like those are good stories. <laughs> we'll <laughs> probably start to hear story. some, uh, some fifth amendment disclaimers or <laughs> yeah, straight up. Like uh, I'm not, I'm not prepared to comment on ongoing litigation. <laughs> <laughs> We'll do it again. We can't thank you enough. Um, it's been an awesome chat. Awesome, like I said, to get to know you better. And I'm glad you, you know, your selflessness still carries through to where you're willing to jump on this podcast and just and just give it a go today. Yeah, I think it's awesome you guys are doing this. So thank you all. Um, you know, I think, who was it? Sebastian Younger talks about, you know, people just need to hear the veteran experience. And you, I think you guys are delivering that in a format that I think everyone's doing these days. So. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for coming on. You know, keep up the fight. Thank you, Travis. <laughs> yeah. Fight or die. Fight or die. Fight or die. Pew, pew, pew.